of you remember this TV show or the reruns of it from the 60s? All right, many of you. Okay. Well, I was a preteen when this show came out, and I was absolutely fascinated by it because it was kind of a mix of like uh, fantasy and science fiction and psychological horror that uh, always ended with this really bizarre twist and often sort of a profound moral. It kind of captured your worst nightmare, and, and it left you feeling unsettled inside because the episode usually ended with the ominous words, you have now crossed over into the twilight zone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I still get the heebie-jeebies when I think about that. Um, I think that we would all agree that sometimes living in this crazy world and our crazy lives, we feel like we have crossed over into the twilight zone. Amen? Amen. Um, even as we approach next week, you know next week is November 8th, and we can't help but feel the political and social dysfunction uh, in our world today. Uh, maybe you're feeling some of the dysfunction in the world in your own family or in your workplace. Uh, some of the physical and mental and emotional illnesses and dysfunctions we, we have to deal with from time to time in our lives or, or the ones we love deal with these things. And it's all part and parcel of that brokenness that we experience that happened way back in Genesis 3. Remember lesson 1. Brokenness shouldn't surprise us or unsettle us, but it always does. That's because there is a little dream in our hearts that this life is not as it was meant to be. The dream of Genesis 1 is that goodness and wholeness and beauty and peace are the way the world was meant to function. And so we live in the tension between God's ideal world that he created and that he is restoring through Jesus and the real world that we live in every day until Jesus comes to set it all right again. I think Jesus more than anyone felt this tension. Stepping into our world must have felt like he was stepping into the twilight zone because this world is nothing like the world from which he came. It's nothing like the world that he created alongside the Father back in Genesis 1. Our lesson today began with the transfiguration, right? Where Jesus, for a brief moment in time, his glory was unveiled. And he got to speak with the glorified Moses and Elijah about his departure from this twilight zone. And I can't help but think how he must have longed to go back from that mountaintop into heaven with Moses and Elijah. But no, they talked about his departure, his exodus, which was going to happen not from that mountaintop, but from Jerusalem. And it was going to be by means of the cross. Because the tide is now turning. We read in Luke 9, 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He had to steal himself for that journey because he knew it was going to involve opposition, more and more opposition, until finally he would be put to death in Jerusalem. And so along the way to Jerusalem, he prays, as he had done all along. Jesus prayed often in good times and bad times. In fact, 
Jesus' entire life was a life of dependence on God through prayer. If we miss this about Jesus, we will have missed him. (laughs) So let me say that again. Jesus' entire life was a life of dependence on God through prayer. And so the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray as they all journeyed toward Jerusalem. And I'm so glad they did because we get to listen in now as Jesus taught his disciples um, how to pray when life gets hard. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. How do we pray? We're going to go through the Lord's Prayer as we call it, but really it's the disciples' prayer. It is for us to pray. And I want to emphasize that this prayer was never meant to be a, a, a ritual, a mindless repetition. It was meant to teach us how to walk with God in this life as we follow Jesus, especially in hard times, especially when we feel like we've crossed over into the twilight zone. And so we're going to look at this prayer in three main sections. The first section is going to talk about how we approach God. And then the second section is going to talk about the perspective we need to have in prayer. And then the third section talks about our neediness, our neediness. And so if you'd like to, turn with me to Matthew 6, and it's verses 9 to 13. It's a very short prayer. We're going to, Matthew's version is a little bit longer than Luke's, and we're going to go through this one because I want to sort of ring out the details for us. So how do we pray? Jesus teaches us to pray like a child, our Father in heaven. We approach God like a child because he is our Father. Now, I know that the word Father, the concept of Father is very hard for some of you because of negligent or abusive fathers or other men in your past. Uh, Whitney's story last week was, was so poignantly um, illustrative of this idea, and many of you could relate to that. Others of us have um, found that it's easy to relate to God as a father because of our own earthly fathers, and we're very grateful for that. But Jesus isn't asking any of us to shape our idea of God based upon our earthly fathers, no matter how good or how bad they were. God is our Father in heaven. That little phrase is full of meaning. Our Father exists completely outside the realm of our imaginations. He transcends all that we know. God is spirit, the Bible tells us, and that means he's neither male nor female. Jesus is using the term Father because he wants to emphasize that he is personal and he is approachable, even as he fills and rules the universe. And the proof of that is in Jesus himself. God so wanted to restore our relationship with him that sin had broken that he condescended to incarnate as a man so that we could see him, touch him, be with him, get to know him, and so that he could look us in the eyes and so that he could see our pain and feel our joy and experience life as we experience it here in the twilight zone. And he did that so we could know that he gets us, he understands us, that he is on our side as we struggle through life. In other words, if you want a picture of God as Father, look at Jesus. He came to reveal the Father. 
As J.D. Gordon puts it, Jesus is God spelled out in language that human beings can understand. I love that. One of my favorite images in the Bible that illustrates the intimacy that we can have with God um, is in Psalm 131, and it's actually a feminine image. As the psalmist is praying to God, and he says these words in Psalm 131, Lord, he says, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or awesome for me, but I have stilled and quieted myself just as a small child is quiet with its mother. Yes, like a small child is my soul within me. Have you ever just sat still with the soul of a child in the intimacy of God's embrace? You're not chattering on and on about stuff. You're not distracted by the million things on your to-do list. You're just quiet. I try to do this for a few minutes every day before I get out of bed just to center myself, to quiet myself. You're quiet in his arms because you are completely safe there and you are tenderly cared for and you are dearly loved by a God who has withheld nothing from you, not even his own son. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are a child of God. And he invites you to still your soul like a small child, to lean in to his embrace. You know, so often we focus on the necessity of faith in our prayer and we worry that we don't have enough faith, you know, for God to answer. You know how you get faith? You assume the posture of a child resting in the arms of his mother. Utterly dependent on one hand and utterly confident on the other hand that you have absolutely nothing to worry about. I love how young children don't worry about anything, do they? They don't have to. They have someone else worrying for them. (laughs) I know that that idea is very counterintuitive to us because in the adult world, in our Western culture especially, we value self-sufficiency and independence. And as a result of that, we work really hard to try to control everything and everyone, right? And when we figure out that we actually can't do that, then we worry a lot. But God does not respond to worry prayers or to proud and and self-sufficient prayers. God responds to the simple, humble, uncomplicated faith of a child, quiet, with its mother. I had to relearn this a few years ago, as I have to relearn from time to time. Um, when I had come absolutely to the end of my own strength and my own abilities, and I realized at that time that even though I had faith in Jesus, I really wasn't walking with Him in the posture of a child, in the posture of of true dependence on Him for everything. And it dawned on me again that I need him for absolutely everything in my life. Every day I get up out of bed, every assignment, every relationship, every meeting, every meal, every moment, every breath, I need God. And so Jesus teaches us to pray like a child. That's the first area. That's how we approach God. The second section of this prayer lets us start asking God for stuff 
But before we hone in on our personal needs, Jesus teaches us to pray with a kingdom perspective. How do we pray with a kingdom perspective? Look at verses 9 and 10. The grammar and structure of the language uh, tells us that we are to see these first three uh, requests as a single unit of thought. So, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The hallowed means, just, it means honor. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, our Father is in heaven where his name is constantly hallowed. Holy, 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 the angels sing. His name is constantly hallowed. He rules over all, and his will is constantly done. We, on the other hand, are on the earth where none of that is true, at least not everywhere and always, right? It is the dream of our Father in heaven to bring his kingdom to the earth. That's why Jesus came. That's why he preached about the kingdom of God everywhere he went. So often... We tend to focus on Jesus' miracles, and I think the people in that day did too. They focused on the miracles, and, um, you know, we are so encouraged by the power and, and the um, just involvement of Jesus in our lives to intervene on our behalf, and that is all right and good. But the miracles were mainly illustrations, demonstrations of Jesus' message that God's kingdom was breaking in through Jesus to fulfill the ancient promises to, um, of a new world made right, a world made whole. In other words, Jesus' miracles show us what it looks like when God is on the earth. When God's kingdom is on the earth, there is blessing instead of cursing. And that means there's abundance instead of scarcity. There's light instead of darkness. There is wholeness instead of brokenness. There is freedom instead of bondage. There is satisfaction instead of hunger. There is love instead of hate. And there is peace instead of chaos. And that's just for starters. We could go on and on about what it means for God's kingdom to be on the earth. One of my seminary professors used to close every class time with prayer. And he would conclude every prayer with these words. Lord, may your kingdom come sooner rather than later. <laughs> I love that. I so get that. I so want Jesus to come to make things right. So in a very real sense, this prayer is a prayer for a future perspective as we pray for Jesus to return to finally and ultimately establish God's rule on the earth. But in another sense, it gives us perspective for this life now as we wait for that to happen. This pattern of prayer is to become the pattern of our lives. That's because those of us who have put our faith in Jesus have entered into God's rule already. And because we have entered into it, we understand that we are to live in this world differently with a new set of values, embodying the kingdom ideals that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain as we learned it in Luke. It is in this way that God is on the earth now through us, by his spirit working in us and through us. So then... When we pray, for example, that God's name would be hallowed on the earth, we need to ask ourselves, am I living in a way that honors God? 
Uh, or am I really living to honor myself? Am I living to gain status, reputation, pleasure, comfort, privilege? Or am I living to reveal God's character and his ways? Living to honor God is a whole new perspective on life, isn't it? It's not normal for people. It is the litmus test for many of our most important decisions that we make in life, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the way we treat people. So the next time you have a decision to make, whether big or small, ask yourself, how can I best honor God by what I decide to do? That's living with perspective. And then when we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, we remember that we carry on the work of the kingdom until he comes again. Because the pattern of Jesus' prayer was the pattern of Jesus' life. And so he brought honor to his father by doing kingdom work. And the, the main thing that he did was to preach that the kingdom was here. He proclaimed the good news everywhere. So we ask ourselves, are we doing that? Are we telling people about Jesus, who he is, what he has done for us, what he wants to do for them? And Jesus taught us that being someone great in God's kingdom means valuing the least and being the servant of all. And so we ask ourselves, are we living that way? Are we using our personal power to help others rather than ourselves, rather than enriching ourselves, or rather than trying to rule over others? Are we embracing the ideals of the kingdom in the way we live it at home and at work and at church? And Jesus demonstrated that the road to glory passes through Jerusalem, where suffering and loss are transformed into life abundant and eternal. If you are suffering now, Jesus invites you to lift up your eyes, to see beyond the cross, to see into eternity, if you will, to life and abundance and joy. Man, that takes faith, doesn't it? takes faith to have a kingdom perspective. There's a lot of meaning packed in to this prayer. How often have you wondered, I just wish I knew what God's will was for my life. This is it. God's will for you, that you would honor his name by the way you live your life so that you can bring the kingdom a little closer to the earth for everyone who needs to see it, for everyone who needs to enter into it by faith in Jesus. This is what it means to pray with a kingdom perspective. How do we pray? We pray like a child. How do we pray? We pray with kingdom perspective. The third section of the Lord's Prayer brings us down to earth now as it addresses our neediness. And even though it's quite brief, it covers everything we need to pray about. How do we ask? How do we pray? Jesus answers, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, depend on God for the most basic necessities of your life, like food. Jesus started there. We misunderstand our relationship with God if we think that we're only supposed to pray for lofty things like God's will and world peace. This prayer teaches us that God is involved in the very mundane things of our lives like eating and drinking. I don't know about you, but I had breakfast this morning and I have bread in my pantry and bread in my freezer to last for many days. 
And I have other good stuff too, like boxed mac and cheese and chicken noodle soup in my pantry. And they probably have a shelf life well into 2017. <laughs> Why do I need to pray for daily bread? Why do you need to? Because in doing that, we are reminded that everything we need and everything we already have comes from God's gracious hand. Now, you work to put food on your table, right? But who provided your job and who gave you the physical and mental capabilities to handle that job? And, and then if you go back further, you, you realize that there are farmers out there that are getting up at the crack of dawn who are plowing the ground and planting the seed and feeding the cattle and praying to God there's not a flood or a drought or a blight or a trucking strike. <laughs> praying for food reminds us how truly dependent we are on God. My, my father was a farmer for many years, and he struggled to provide for our family because, as he said, he couldn't control the weather, and he couldn't control the price of beef or anything else. There is so much in this world that we can't control. There are forces beyond our control that remind us that we need God, that remind us that we are to live in utter dependence on God for even our most basic needs. And this is also about a daily dependence. This day, our daily bread. In Matthew's gospel, the Lord's prayer is followed by Jesus' teaching about worry, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries on its own, right? Sure does. So we look to God to provide things that are sufficient for just today. I pray the Lord's prayer almost every day. And when I get to this part, I usually thank God for the food I just ate and for what's in my pantry later on. But then it, it reminds me that I can ask God for whatever else I need today, for wisdom, for decisions, for strength and ability to accomplish something, for compassion to think about somebody else besides myself. And because this is a communal prayer, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. I'm reminded to pray for what other people need, including my brothers and sisters across the ocean and in our own community who don't know where their next meal is coming from. And it prompts me not only to think about them and to pray for them, but to make sure, to, to check myself, to make sure I am giving adequately for my abundance to meet their needs. There is so much we all need every single day of life. Most of it we take for granted. I'm going to be 60 this month. I can hardly believe it. And the older I get, the more I realize how dependent I am on God for every breath I take. My 85-year-old parents tell me from time to time that they're only a fall away or only a stroke away from needing <laughs> nursing care. <laughs> But you know, no matter how old you are, things happen in the twilight zone that remind us that apart from God's provision and protection, life is fragile. This is why when we learn through the discipline of prayer to depend on God like a child for daily physical needs, we find ourselves less and less anxious about tomorrow. Doesn't mean you can't pray. Pray about the future or plan for it. But even that you do today. You only have today. And so Jesus invites us to do what we need to do today, not with anxiety or fear, but with a grateful and dependent heart, the heart of a child, quiet with its mother.
Well, if the prayer for daily bread was primarily about physical life and health, then the next one has to do with spiritual life and health. Verse 12 says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The word debt is um, a metaphor for sin, right? It's the idea that we are morally bankrupt before a holy God. It's like putting so much on, on that Visa credit card bill that you can never, ever pay it back. Problem is, most of us think we're not that bad. We don't really sin that much that we couldn't make up for it somehow later. Well, that's a problem because that's what the Pharisees thought. That's because they measured their sin by their outward behavior. Well, anyone can act right most of the time, can't they? It is what's in our heart that condemns us before God. Our pride, our self-sufficiency, our envy, our greed, our lust, our lack of compassion. Is anybody here not guilty? No. None of us can be righteous before God except for Jesus. The good news, the gospel, is that in Jesus Christ, our debts are gone. They're paid for. They're forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Because of Jesus, all you have to do to attain forgiveness is to ask for it. And the answer is yes. The answer will always be yes. There is nothing you have ever done or ever will do that cannot be forgiven by God except to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject our Father in heaven who sent him to pay our debt. To accept Jesus is to accept our Father in heaven. And so I hope and pray that you all have done that. There's no greater freedom than to know that your debt is paid, that you are free. And there's no more beautiful relationship than between you and your Father in heaven that Jesus made possible through his life and death and resurrection. And here's another beautiful thing. Because we are forgiven, we can forgive. We can forgive. This is the hardest part of the prayer, isn't it? The greatest need in our world today is reconciliation, wouldn't you say? And it begins with forgiveness. We can't do this on our own. If there's someone that you need to forgive today, you start by admitting to yourself and to God that you can't do it on your own. It's just too hard. You are a child needing his provision. And the person that you need to forgive is also a child who needs forgiveness from you and from God, whether they realize it or not. The point is that forgiveness comes from God and everyone needs it. And we must be willing to give to others what we are asking for ourselves. It's not about, you know, me getting forgiveness so then I can be self-righteous and then hold that over you. It's about me giving to you what I have first received from God. The language in this prayer indicates that this is a present and ongoing forgiveness. We're asking because we are forgiving. It's that communal aspect of the prayer again. We are praying, forgive us our sins as we forgive our, uh, those who sin against us. I should say our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's this rhythm of, of giving and receiving forgiveness in the community of faith. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing.
Now, I know that forgiveness is a huge subject and it can't be treated adequately in the time that we have, but it begins here. It begins with prayer. Prayer that acknowledges your need for forgiveness first. Remember lesson four when we talked about uh, Jesus teaching to take the log out of our own eye and then we can see to take the speck out of our brother's eye? And then in that same lesson, he taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who mistreat us. Years ago, I was struggling to forgive a close friend who had wounded me very deeply. And a very wise woman counseled me with those very passages of Scripture, and this one too. She told me, forgiveness is a command, but this is how you do it. Every time those feelings of resentment bubble up, you pray for that person. You pray blessing for them over and over and over again. And you know, I did that. And to my great astonishment over time, not only did I find my anger slowly melting away, but actually love began to take root in my heart where I really felt like I hated that person. It surprised me. Forgiveness, like food, is a daily need for all of us to receive it and to give it. Well, just as forgiveness is a daily need and bread, so is protection. And that's where Jesus goes next. This last section, protection, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation. Right away, that brings up a question, doesn't it? Would God really lead us into temptation? Doesn't James 1.13 say that God tempts no man? Yes, it does. So why do we need to pray that God would not lead us into temptation? Well, the language here is a little bit tricky because the word for temptation is also the word for trial. And so many think that the prayer is to ask God um, to keep us from uh, being involved in such difficult situations that we would be tempted to deny him and then to live life in a way that doesn't honor him. But the original language carries with it the sense that one person is prohibiting another person from taking some kind of action that's going to cause them harm, like a parent who would prevent their child from touching a hot stove. The prayer is that God would prohibit us from succumbing to temptation. In other words, without God to lead us away from temptation and sin, we will lead ourselves right into it. Jesus knows us so well because he lived among us. He became one of us, though he was without sin. We need daily protection from ourselves, from our own propensity to sin and to go astray, to do our own will instead of his. And Jesus knows better than anyone else also that we have a powerful enemy. Deliver us from evil, he prays next. That's the final petition. Deliver us from evil. Or your version may say the evil one. And either one um, is, are adequate translations. Whether Jesus is referring to the evil in ourselves that would tempt tempt us to lead us away from God, whether it's the general evil in this world that we see and experience, or whether it is the evil one, and I do think this is the best translation, the evil one, the one, that the devil in the wilderness that tempted Jesus, the same snake in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve, 
The one Jesus talked about in John 10, who is the false shepherd who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. The one Paul talks about as a lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. Jesus is saying, we need daily protection. We need internal and external protection from evil. So ask your Father in heaven for what you need. Ask him daily. There's so much more we could say about that, but we need to wrap it up. The fundamental, fundamental message of the Lord's Prayer is how to relate to God. How do we walk with God? How do we pray? We pray like a child to a father who is exactly like Jesus. How do we pray? We pray with a kingdom perspective that reminds us that this life is not all there is, that there is a kingdom to come where God's will is done on the earth as it is in heaven. And until then, we live as if we're already there. How do we pray? We pray for our daily needs, for the basic necessities of our lives, for forgiveness of sin as we extend it to others, for protection from temptation and every form of evil. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer of daily dependence on God for everything we need in life. So now I'd like to stop talking about prayer and actually do it. And I'd like to do it with you. <laughs> I want you to join me in praying the Lord's Prayer together. Now you have a copy of it on your table. It's a little pink sheet. If y'all would go ahead and pass those out so that we're praying the same words at the same time. And... Um, I also wanted to mention, for those of you that may have memorized this prayer growing up, you may have been surprised as you studied the Bible that the last phrase that you were accustomed to praying, for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever, amen, is not actually in the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples. It was added later, and then as much older manuscripts were discovered, uh, learned that it wasn't in the original, but the church kept it because it's a beautiful summation of the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to also pray it in uh, following church tradition in that way. Um, and also, this is something I would like for you to keep at your bedside table or somewhere where you're going to see it every day, because I would like for you to pray the Lord's Prayer at least once a day for a week, not as mindless repetition, but to remind you to depend on God daily for what you need, to go to him in prayer day after day, to follow this pattern in your life as you follow it in prayer. So would you bow with me and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.